Well, we're back in Luke chapter 4, and um, we've seen how Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And the people, as they gathered in the synagogue that particular Saturday uh, worship service, the Jewish Sabbath was the Saturday, uh, they said this to, uh, to Jesus, whatever we have heard you do in Capernaum, do also here. We've heard you've been doing many amazing things in Capernaum. Would you do them here amongst us? They wanted some demonstration, uh, something uh, dramatic from this uh, new preacher, uh, Jesus, who they knew so well. And uh, when he replied to them uh, uh, in a certain way, they were angry and they rose up and they uh, herded him out of the town onto a hillside and they would have done away with him there, but uh, miraculously he moved through the midst of them and continued on his way. Now what Luke does now is tell us what had been going on in Capernaum. The next set of events really actually happened before the Nazareth event. And we're going to see what actually was happening in Capernaum that the people in Nazareth were demanding he would do amongst them. And uh, why is it that Luke is inspired to put the Nazareth event first? Well, it serves certainly as a little cameo of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would be rejected and despised as Isaiah the prophet had said, what do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ here this evening? Is he everything to you? Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. They certainly despised him in Nazareth and didn't esteem him. But it's also the Nazareth event, a little pointer towards Calvary. Uh, they would have done away with him in Nazareth, but that wasn't the time and that wasn't the place. But Isaiah uh, saw the, uh, the events. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he, this is his great work, his greatest work was his death. don't know what you might consider your greatest work if you were asked in an interview I might ask that in the after meeting what's your greatest uh, work so far uh, in your life well Jesus's greatest work was reserved to the very end it was his death on Calvary and uh, Isaiah the prophet had foreseen it he was wounded why for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement that brings our peace. The only reason we have peace with God is because uh, He was chastised in our place. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By His stripes, we are healed. We all, all we, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So the Nazareth event 
do amongst us what you've been doing in Capernaum. And now we're going to find out what he had been doing in Capernaum. And uh, rapidly, there are a series of miracles and events here. And tonight we'll look at verses 31 to 37. Uh, the casting out of the demon. But let's begin in verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Now, then might suggest a time, but the actual Greek word can be interpreted, as many of your translations will have, uh, with the word and, which is the most common translation. Kai, uh, and. And he went down to Capernaum. Luke's going to tell us what was happening in Capernaum. And the first thing he tells is this, that Jesus was teaching. Teaching. And Christianity is primarily teaching. And it's what we do here, week by week and uh, throughout the week. Uh, we teach uh, a body of truth. There is a message to be proclaimed. And we do it publicly from a pulpit or from a lectern or sat down in little groups. Uh, maybe we'll be in the coffee shop and uh, God willing again this Thursday. Then on the 13th of February we'll be in the coffee shop again and we'll be in little groups and we'll be uh, discussing and talking. But there'll be teaching, teaching. There is a message that the world needs to hear. And it's a message which we cannot be indifferent to. The message of the Bible demands a response. And the message is incredibly good news. It tells us about God. And we all know deep down that there is a God. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. These last few nights have been incredibly cold because the sky's been incredibly clear. There's been no roof to keep the heat in. and It's been uh, escaping. It's got very, very cold. But what a display. And uh, our William came in and said, oh, Jupiter's right by the moon. Uh, and it is at the moment. They do a little dance across the sky together. You won't see it tonight because of the clouds. But if you saw that bright piece of light by the moon, that was Jupiter. And uh, it's a great sight. Get your binoculars out and, and have a, a look. And you might discern the little moons around Jupiter uh, as well. But their heavens are saying something. They're declaring God is glorious and that God exists and that he's all-powerful and that he's eternal and that he's the creator. And of all that God created, you and I are the very center because we are unique. Uh, Nathan was telling us this morning, where's the cuddly toys? We have them back here. There was the, uh, the, the dolphin first of all, then the blue uh, whale. I thought it was going to eat the dolphin, but it, but it didn't. So well, well done there, uh, Nathan. But Dolphins and blue whales are magnificent animals, but they are just animals. You and I, though, we're unique. We are made in God's image. There's something of God's stamp on you and I. Yes, it's been marred and twisted by sin, but it's still his image that we can ponder the heavens. We've got a dog called Pip at home. We've got a new dog now. Our son and his wife have got another border collie, and he's called Jack. They don't ponder the heavens. They don't sit together musing in the garden. Oh, there's Jupiter in their doggy language together. None of that. 
They don't really ponder their reason, raison d'etre, reason for existing. They love to eat food and chase balls and bones and things, but we, you and I are unique. We ponder, we reflect, we're creative, we communicate. This is the image of God. We were made for one supreme reason, that's to know God. This is the gospel. It's good news, isn't it? That you're not just an accident. That God decided, whoever you are to make you, he made you for one supreme reason. We do lots of things, but there's one central reason. That's to know him, not just to know about him. That's religion. But to know him, that's Christianity. To know him as a friend, as a shepherd, as a helper, as a provider. What a friend we have in Jesus. How glorious. So why don't we know God? Well, there's a moral problem. It happened in the Garden of Eden. It's called sin. But it predates what happened in the Garden of Eden. Our problem goes back and it's connected to a, a, a fall that happened in heaven. Where Lucifer, son of the morning, rebelled against God. And with a third of the angels of heaven, he fought against God and the other angels and of course he's defeated. He wanted to be like the Most High, not satisfied with being a guardian cherub. He wanted more. Pride was in his heart and he was cast down to this earth. He's allowed into the Garden of Eden. He tempts Adam and Eve and they fall and they disobey one simple command and that's the root of all our problems. Why is the world it is? And it's senseless the things that go on. Why? Sin. Rebellion, cut off from our reason for being, we try and find other reasons, and none of them are fulfilling. And the end of sin is death, spiritual death, we don't know God. Physical death, it comes to us all. But there is an eternal death. We will live, we will exist forever. It's a matter of where. There's eternal life or there's eternal death. And if sin is to our account, when we meet the Lord, then we can never go home to heaven. And deep down, we, we feel our kinship with heaven. It's where we ought to be. But sin bars us from heaven. What's the answer? Well, now, here's the good news. It's not religion. It's not going to church, standing up, sitting down, saying, prayer, singing hymns. It's Jesus Christ. It's God's way. To get to heaven, I need a perfect life, and I haven't got one. So God, in his mercy, there's an eternal plan it's planned even before the fall, even before that rebellion in heaven, that God devised a way whereby you and me can be guaranteed, cast iron guarantee, heaven. How? To get to heaven, I need a clean life and I haven't got one. So God the Son now, sent by God the Father, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, the triune God is involved in this. The Son becomes... A little baby becomes a child, becomes a teenager, becomes a young man, but never stops being God. He's the eternal Son of God who becomes a man. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to do us good. He's come to take away our biggest problem, which is sin. That ruins our lives here. Ruins relationships and families and nations and wars between nations. One day, my friends, it will all come to an end. But here and now... We're in this parenthesis between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. But what did Jesus do? 
Number one, he lived a perfect life. We're reading about that in Luke's Gospel. He went around doing good. The Father is so pleased, he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Oh, listen to, listen to him. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he lives a perfect life for us. He's willing to give that life to you and swap it for the life that you've lived. And what does he do with the life that you've lived? Well, it deserves hell. So Jesus takes your life with him to the cross outside Jerusalem where he died the death he didn't deserve according to the eternal plan. He dies the death that you and I deserve. And him writers put it very poetically. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's no power in religion. <laughs> you could go to churches tonight and the, uh, a minister might say, well, try your best. There's no power in that. It's hopeless. But there is power in this. It is finished, said Jesus. Not that it was a despairing, oh, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai means accomplished, paid, He died the death that you deserve. How do I know it's all true? Ah, well, the third day, as he said he would, he rose again from the dead. Death defeated. Hell sealed over. The gates of heaven not only open, they're taken off their hinges, my friend. And the Holy Spirit would say, in the merits of Jesus Christ, come and be forgiven. Now, have you been forgiven? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? We all have to come this way. Now, it's a humbling process. You need to repent of what you are and of what you've done. And I emphasize we repent of what we are. You might say, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a rapist, I'm not a terrorist, but you are a sinner. And the smallest sin will bar us from heaven. A lie, greed, pride, envy, anger, malice. And these taint all of our hearts. And Jesus says, come to me. I will deal with them. Whatever you have been, whoever you are, you come to Jesus Christ, you repent, you turn away from self, and you turn to the only Saviour, and you receive sins forgiven, peace with God, and the certainty of heaven. He takes your sin, and you're given his clean life. That, my friends, is the teaching. And Jesus is going around the synagogues, and he was teaching. And I want to tell you tonight, there's a way back to God. From the dark paths of sin, there's a door that is open and all may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. So Jesus is going around and he is teaching. And then we get the response now of the people in Capernaum, verse 32. They, the people, were astonished at his teaching. For his word was with authority. They were astonished. Um, the Greek word ekpleso uh, means, literally, it means uh, to be out, ekpleso, struck. They were outstruck, or put it the right way around in English, they were, they were struck out. 
Uh, they were knocked out by what he was saying. I would say, we've been blown away by the things that we've heard. My friend, are you blown away tonight? If you're not yet saved, you ought to be blown away by this. You can be forgiven. You can know what your reason for life is. You can come to know the creator of the universe. You can be sure that when you breathe your last, when I tread the verge of Jordan, William Williams, very poetic, the Jordan, death, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death, that's a name for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the death of death. He's hell's destruction. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction. Jesus, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. They were blown away by what they had heard. Let me give you Mark's account of this. Mark 1 verses 21 and 22. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. Not as the scribes. Now how would the scribes teach? They would have the scrolls. A scroll would be handed to them. They would then have liberty to find a passage that uh, they could speak on. And uh, perhaps we have a faithful scribe and uh, he, he reads and he gives some thoughts on that passage and maybe makes some applications. But here in Capernaum, this particular Sabbath day, it's not a faithful scribe, but it's a fiery young preacher from Nazareth. I want to say this evening, now there are many, well, there are mainly three men currently who stand in the pulpit here. There's myself, there's Wynne, there's Nathan, there are other visiting preachers. But throughout Cardiff tonight, throughout Wales, throughout the whole of the world, in Christian churches, there are only two types of preacher. And I want to be the second type, and I want to be under the second type, however fumbling or stumbling that preacher might be. I want to be the second type that I'll mention here, because there is either preaching in the flesh, or there's preaching in the spirit. And preaching in the flesh can be very faithful. It can be very factual. It can be very fascinating. It can be well prepared. It can be well crafted and honed. It can be polished through the week. Uh, it can be well illustrated. It can be well applied but if it's only in the flesh it might give information to the mind such a, a sermon it might actually move your affections that you might cry it might make you laugh it might help you to rejoice on a level 
But preaching in the flesh alone will never hit the spot. Because God works in the centre of the man or the woman or the child or the young person, the heart of hearts, in such a way he enlightens the mind and moves the heart, but he also motivates and moves the will towards God. There's the flesh. And it can happen in reformed evangelical churches. But then there's preaching in the Spirit. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And he carries out his earthly ministry. Now, although he's the Son of God, fully God, who becomes fully man, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, yet he, in his humiliation, conducts his earthly ministry not in his own innate power, but in the power of God the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who drives him out into the wilderness. He returns to Capernaum and he preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, for you and for me, for any preacher, our desire is to preach, yes, in words, but more than words. Our desire is to study well, but more than studying well. Our desire is to illustrate the passage, but more than have good illustrations. If there's something that can bring a light-hearted moment into what is actually a very serious occasion, then maybe it may that be, be done, but, but sensitively. But here's what we desire most of all, that it wouldn't be in word only, but also in that demonstration and anointing of God the Holy Spirit. So when Paul, you know this passage, I know it well. When Paul goes to Corinth and writes then to them, he says this, And I, brethren, 1 Corinthians 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If a man is preaching in the flesh, he might win converts. And they might say, can I be baptised? And they might join the church. But here's the problem. They're not converted. Right? Their faith is resting, in a sense, in, in human wisdom. Let me give you an example. I'm often asked to speak on uh, things like evidence for the resurrection. Right? Maybe the student meeting, and I'm not against doing this, and I'm happy to do it again this year. I've been asked to do just that. And uh, I can go through a series of proofs, evidence, really legal evidence, forensic evidence, that Jesus Christ did actually rise from the dead. And we can go through them one by one. And we can say at the end of it, uh, surely... Within the realms of probability, Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. 
And you might have some young person there who say, I, I find that, that very persuasive. Uh, I'm going to become a Christian. My friends, if their faith rests simply on that, it isn't true saving faith. They've been persuaded by human arguments. But what I would always add in such a presentation is this. Here's the real evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I actually came to meet him. I had an encounter with him through the word and by his spirit. And he showed me my need. And that need met in him and in him alone. And the final persuasive proof that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead is not these human arguments, but it's the fact that you yourself need an encounter with him. And until you have that encounter, it's merely human activity. No, that power of God the Holy Spirit is what is desperately needed. Now, I don't think we're going to get on to um, the actual miracle itself uh, this evening. Time is whizzing by. Paul would say this as he goes and contemplates going to Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's the word here, revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, as I shared the gospel earlier, unless the Holy Spirit was working in your heart, then they were merely words. Maybe wonderful words, maybe words worth some consideration. But they bounced off your stony heart. But when the Holy Spirit is working, then there's a revelation comes to you. And the Greek word apocalypto means to make known that which is hidden. And it's only at that point, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that makes you realize, brings you to your senses to see that you are a sinner before a holy God and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He lived for you, He died for you, He rose again. And when He then says, come to me, or when the preacher says, repent and believe, suddenly you find you have the ability to do that because there's been this revelation, this apocalypto in your life. And so two types of preaching. And that's why on a Wednesday night, what any preacher would covet in the prayer meeting, and it's not just wasted words, it's praying to God for that anointing of the Holy Spirit and that we grapple with Him and wrestle with Him and don't let Him go till He blesses us with this because unless that happens, whether it's Wynne or myself or Nathan, it's a human activity and how we need more than that in our day and generation, not only on a Sunday, but all the meetings of Sunday school, the youth meetings, the kids' clubs. Why aren't we seeing a great gathering of souls? Maybe it's the day of small things. Well, let's pray. It wouldn't be the day of small things. Let's pray for a day of greater things. It's past seven o'clock already. Let me conclude with an illustration I've read recently. Actually, it was a while ago. I found it again recently it concerns a dream 
that uh, a Puritan called Thomas Boston had. And then we include Spurgeon and also Tory. But let's start off with the dream of Thomas Boston. He dreamt that while walking through town, he saw the devil preaching on a street corner. Boston thought he must be a fundamentalist, this preacher, for he was preaching the gospel, telling men and women that he believed God's word from cover to cover. Boston went up to him and asked, Are you the devil? Of course I am, replied the devil. And you are preaching the gospel? Yes, I am preaching the gospel. But why are you preaching the gospel, asked the Puritan. It's because I've made this discovery. The best weapon for the damning of souls is to get men to preach the gospel without the anointing of God. Now, Spurgeon says that when he read this, he trembled. And as a preacher, I, I tremble. The great evangelist and educator R.A. Torrey understood this truth when he said, I tremble for those who are preaching the truth, the very truth as it is in Jesus, the truth as it's recorded in the written word of God, the truth in its simplicity, its purity, its fullness, who are preaching it in persuasive words of man's wisdom and not in demonstration of the spirit and of power. They are preaching it in the energy of the flesh and not in the power of the spirit. There is nothing more death-dealing than the gospel without the Spirit's power. The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Jesus Christ was preaching that day in this particular synagogue where the man was there with the, uh, the demon, but he was preaching the power of the Holy Spirit. People noticed he's preaching as one with authority and not as the scribes. Let's make it our prayer individually as we pray day by day for the preaching on the coming Sunday that God would anoint the preaching, whoever it might be. There are only two types of preaching, and this is the one I would want to be sitting under, where it is spirit anointed. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And then in the prayer meeting, it wouldn't matter if everybody prayed that prayer. We might think, oh, someone's prayed that already. It's so urgent, the need. Has anyone been saved tonight? Nobody? How about this morning? Were you here this morning and you were saved? Does it matter? It matters greatly. Only God can save. Now we know that truth. Let's ask Him. Let's ask Him. Collectively and individually. There's really no one been saved today. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for an all too brief time in your house. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the hymns we've been able to sing. Thank you for the Bible that's been read. Thank you for a, a faltering 
exposition of just two verses at the start of a miracle. Now we pray, Lord, that you would use these things to the glory of your name. Change us, we pray, individually from glory into glory. Change us as a whole church. Make us what thou wouldst have us be. Help us to be focused on the main things, which are the plain things of your word. And help us always to be about our Father's business. Forgive us for our sins again, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. I think it's 562 that we're finishing with. Um, reflects the words of the Lord Jesus Christ on, on the cross. If I've got it right. Yes, tis finished, the Messiah dies. Cut off for sins, but not his own. Accomplished is the sacrifice, the great redeeming work is done. We can sing this triumphantly if we've trusted Christ already.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.